So with all the uh, stuff going on this week, I, you know, it, I'd almost forgotten until last night that you know, we were changing time. So you guys are the late, late group, so you had the most time to recover. A few of us are starting to feel that, uh, that lost hour uh, right about now. It was very dark when I was up and very dark when we arrived here this morning. But uh, but hope you're doing hope you're doing well. We're going to continue this morning with our uh, sermon series that started last week. If you were with us, we started a series. It's going to be our Lenten sermon series, and it's titled "The Week That Changed the World." And I thought about changing and re-preaching the previous series called "Don't Worry" after everything that happened this week, but we'll stick with where we're going. And what what we're doing in this series is that we're just retracing the movement, the steps, if you will, of Jesus in that week we call Holy Week or the Passion Week, the, the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. And so, so last week we, we talked about the strange beginning, which was the triumphal entry. We talked about Jesus coming in. Uh, this, this parade, this, this throng of people that were praising and, and singing their hosannas. And that sharp turn that the Gospel of Luke takes in immediately going from Jesus coming in with triumph to the tears as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, as he weeps over the city, as, as he recognizes in the grief that, that they don't know who he is, who they want and who he is, not the same thing, and that they have missed his coming altogether. And, and so now we turn to the, the very next verses in the Gospel of Luke. But it's also important to say that it's not the very next thing, it's just the next thing Luke tells us about, because we go from Sunday to Monday. So we've moved from the, the, uh, what we know as Palm Sunday to the events of Monday, but it's the very next thing that Luke talks about. And it is the encounters, we'll read just a couple of primary verses this morning of Jesus in the temple and the overturning of the tables of the money changers or the driving out of the money changers and the merchants. And, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But one of the things that was kind of struck me as I was preparing this week, something I had never paid attention to in the reading of the gospel, is how stark and, and, and startling are the emotional transitions in this 19th chapter of Luke. And as I just mentioned, you know, you go from the joy of triumph as Jesus comes into the city to the tears as he weeps over the city, now to the tension as Jesus exhibits the anger over the injustice that he sees in the temple. So triumph, tears, to tension. Uh, Triumph, tears, um, to to, um, anger. And that's where we turn uh, this morning in, in the scripture. So let's pick right up where we left off last week. Right after Jesus weeping over the city in Luke chapter 19, we begin at verse 45. And this is what we read. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, let that be true of us. 
that, that we would hang on your words and let your words and your story and your actions um, speak to us and change us and move us to, to faithfulness and obedience. Lord, in these moments, this time is yours. May these words that are spoken be pleasing to you. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. So let's start with this question. If I was speaking to you individually, and I said to you, do you like to get roughed up? Would you like it if somebody roughed you up or something roughed you up? How many of you go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, we, we generally ascribe that to, or we think of that, at least I do, as, as somebody kind of physically abusing you or doing something harmful to you. And certainly it can be. When somebody, you know, on the news, if we saw a story that somebody had been roughed up, we would think of an assault or some sort of violent act. But the reality, there, there are areas in your life that you not only need to be roughed up, but you welcome being roughed up on a day-to-day basis. I hope this morning all of you got roughed up. And when I say that, what I mean is, I hope you bathed. I hope you bathed. Or at least last night. Maybe last night this morning. Because if you use in the shower a washcloth, if you use a, a loofah, I'm not even sure what that is. Um, if you use one of them scrunchy things, you're embracing the opportunity to experience a little bit of roughing up. Because those things, and, and the, the soaps that we use that have abrasives in it, um, salts or other things that are kind of rough, the idea is it roughs your skin up. The idea is that there's some, some roughness there that will slough off dead skin cells, that will remove dirt and will remove grime, that will do the necessary rough work so that you can be made clean. So, so in aspects of our lives, we embrace being roughed up. We have learned more this week, or some of us have learned, I have learned, let's just do it this way, more about the proper way to wash my hands than I've ever known in my entire life. I wash my hands differently today than I did a week ago because of what I've seen. I, you know, it used to be, and I always wash my hands in case you were worried, but you know, you'd wash your hands and you'd be kind of done. But now it's not only the 20 seconds. I learned that years ago. Lord's Prayer, good 20 seconds. Do the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's a lot of other things, but that's the way I learned it. But, but now, because I watched medical professionals, and some of you know this, but, but I, I wash, and, and then I take my fingers, and I do this, and I take my fingers, and I do this, and I do my thumbs to get the finger ends, because you're roughing it up. You want to remove the skin and the dirt and the grime, and, and, and you know, it's vigorous, and it's, it's meant to create friction. We need Friction. That is the process of ensuring that we are made clean. Okay, now let's now just drive the metaphor into what Jesus is doing here. Let's look at what this story is about. Two verses, and it's two verses in Luke, but it's a, it's a story that's found in all of the Gospels. And Jesus is coming into the temple, and he is exhibiting roughness necessary roughness because something needs to be made clean 
Something needs to be restored. Something is happening that isn't right. And Jesus chooses to address it. And Jesus takes action so that through the roughness of his action, and they are rough, something can be made clean. So let's unpack that a little bit. Because very clearly, this story reveals the anger of Jesus. Whichever gospel you read it in, you don't read this and go, oh, Jesus was in a bright, sunny, happy mood. He's angry. And that, at its very surface, can challenge us a little bit, especially if you've been kind of conditioned, if you've been taught, if you've embraced an idea that anger is wrong. Let me challenge that a little bit. Let me challenge that understanding because we believe that anger in and itself is sin. Let me challenge that as well. Because anger is a, is a natural human emotion. We all occasionally get angry. We all have things, I, I believe, I mean, I, I've never known anybody that said they never had a moment of anger. Some are more prone to it. But we all have circumstances and situations that can trigger anger in us. Some very deep-seated, some uh, surface level. I, I read a story, an excerpt from, from one of Paul Harvey's books. The book came out in the late 70s. And I'm sure it was excerpts from his radio show, those of you that, that remember Paul Harvey. And he, it was a story of a, of a robbery in, I think it was in Oceanside, California. And the, the bank robber came into the bank and he was casing it. And he was picking his target. He was picking out which teller he was going to, to go to to give this, this, um, this note that the bank was being robbed. And so he, there was a, one of the tellers was a woman about her mid-50s. She looked like a, a kind of a soft target in the sense that uh, she wasn't going to put up a lot of resistance, wasn't going to fight back. So, so he chose her. He went up. He still had a bike helmet on, like a motorcycle helmet, which tells you how many years ago that was because you can't go into banks with those on now. But he still had it on. And he walks up to the teller and he gives her the note saying, you know, give me the money. This is a robbery. And instinctively, she sees it, and she starts to do what we've probably all been taught to do in a situation like that, give the money up. You know, don't do anything to put yourself at risk. So she's pulling out this money drawer. It says that she looked again at the note. And when she did, her eyes just like a fire took over. And there was just this, this, just this bowing up, if you will. And she grabs that money drawer, and instead of taking out the money and giving it to him, she begins to just beat him over the top of the head with the drawer, just pounding him and just giving him what for verbally as she's doing it. And money's flying everywhere. And he is absolutely shocked at what's going on, and, and he's stunned he doesn't know what to do, so the robber flees, and they find him hiding in the bushes, and he gets arrested. And the detectives and the police are, are interviewing her afterward, and she's like, and they're like, you know, what were you thinking? What, what were you thinking? Why did you react in this kind of way? Why didn't you just give him the money? And she's like, I was going to give him the money, but then I looked at his note, and his note had a naughty word. <laughs> True story. And it triggered her. If he only had been polite, he might have gotten away with it. But he picked the woman that wasn't going to put up with the naughty word. Now, now my point is, we all have trigger points. What's important for us as we evaluate anger in ourselves is what's the... Anger is a secondary emotion. 
Anger is a secondary emotion. It is a response to something else. Disappointment, discouragement, anxiety, worry, uh, a personal offense, something that we see. It's a response to something. In our moments of anger, and most likely after our moments of anger, it becomes important for a a practice of self-evaluation to say, why did that situation make me angry? And often we will, I find, let me not even put it, often I find that anger is very selfish. Often I find, and this is where the sin of anger comes, that it's because I didn't get something I wanted, or somebody didn't behave the way I thought they should, or something didn't go the way that I believed it it ought to have. And it becomes very self-focused. Not always. Not always, but that's where anger can become. So anger that is selfish can be sinful, and anger that produces destructive behaviors toward others can and is sinful. And that's where we have to be careful. That's why we get warned so much about controlling our anger because of the way that we respond to it. Now, here we have a situation where Jesus is angry. And this is what's so important to recognize, that Jesus is exhibiting what we would call a righteous anger. And anger can be righteous because, see, what Jesus is angry about is not a self-centered focus. Jesus never is. He's angry because he sees people being exploited. He sees abuse taking place. And what we know about Jesus is he always stood up for the marginalized, the ostracized, the forgotten about, the pushed aside, the poor and the neglected. And that's exactly what's happening here. He sees a situation that needs to be made clean. He sees a situation where abuse, something is dirty, and he's using a little bit of necessary roughness to make things right and to restore to this situation God's purpose and desire. So let's unpack what's happening here because two verses don't give us a lot of background until you begin to understand the dynamic that's at work. So now we're on Monday of Holy Week. Jesus comes to the temple. He goes up this place called the Teaching Steps. Those of us that were in Israel a couple weeks ago walked at the Teaching Steps. And you walk up to the Temple Mound where the the temple was located. And there were, if you want to use the term levels, that somebody could move to on the temple. There were kind of stages if you will. The first place that you would walk into there on the Temple Mound in Jerusalem was what's called the Court of the Gentiles. And that is where all everybody could come and, and people were coming because this is the Passover. And so people that were not Jewish could come into the Court of the Gentiles and that's where they could pray and, and, and have a moment with God. Now, if, again, if you weren't Jewish, that's the extent of how far you went. If you were Jewish, you could go a next step. If you were a woman, you could go to the court of the women, and you were Jewish. If you were a man, you could go a little further into the court of the men. Then if you were a priest, you got a little bit further. And then, of course, at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest once a year could enter into that space to make the sacrifice and the atonement on behalf of the people. So, so again, kind of these levels and stages. Jesus comes up to the temple and he comes into the court of the Gentiles. And this is what's happening. Business is taking place. Business is happening in the court of the Gentiles. Two areas of business. One, creatures are being sold for the sacrifice. Because people have traveled from all over Israel and sometimes from beyond Israel. And because during the Passover is when you made the sacrifice, you made the sacrifice for your atonement, 
for, to write the relationship with God. And it wasn't feasible for all these pilgrims to travel with the animals necessary for the sacrifice. So they could come to the temple and they could buy the provision for their sacrifice. If you were very, very poor, very poor, you could buy grain for the sacrifice. If you had a little bit more, then you could buy a dove for the sacrifice. If you were a little better off economically, you could buy a lamb or a goat for the sacrifice. And if you were really doing well, you could buy an ox for the sacrifice. But that's happening here, where people can come and buy what they need for, this, for, the, for the Passover. Now, the second thing that's happening is the money changers. Because the other thing that you did at the Passover is you paid your temple tax. The temple tax was a half shekel. It was a Tyrian shekel. But people come from different regions, different places, different currency. Just like when we travel today. You go to different countries, you may have to get different currency. So the money changers were there so that you could come and you could exchange your local currency for the necessary shekels, Tyrian shekels, to pay your tax. All this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. Now, in and of itself, these are not bad things. They're not inappropriate practices. They are established in, in theory for the good of the people. In practice, not so much. Because what was happening is people were taking advantage of the vulnerability and the faithfulness of the holy pilgrims that were coming. They were profiting because you were in a um, must-purchase situation. If you wanted to pay your temple tax, you had to exchange your currency. If you wanted to be a part of the Passover celebration, you had to buy the provisions necessary. And what do we know about human nature? When you have somebody who has to buy something, when you have somebody in a vulnerable position where they are dependent upon a good or service that you can offer, sometimes people will use that for their own personal gain. I mean, we've seen that this past week on eBay. Purell hand sanitizer was selling, a bottle of sanitizer was selling for $122. Need I say more? We see it at hurricanes, right? We've price gouging, people that will sell a, 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 a case of water for 60 bucks or 80 bucks because people are vulnerable, because people feel desperate. People feel like, I have to get this. And I'm not saying everybody does this. Of course, most people don't, but some do. Jesus walks into the temple, and that's sort of what he's seeing. He's seeing money changers that are charging exorbitant amounts to change currency. He sees sellers of, of these animals for the Passover that are charging ridiculous amounts, taking advantage of people, and often taking advantage of those who are mo most vulnerable. They're using religion and faithfulness for personal gain and for profit. And how I wish that was a rare story. You know, in a lighthearted way, in late 80s, Ray Stevens had a song. Some of you may remember. And the, the lyrics, the first verse went like this. It was written by Chet Adkins. And it said, Woke up this morning, turned on my TV set. There in living color was something I can't forget. This man was preaching at me. He was laying on the charm, asking me for 20 with 10,000 on his arm. 
And it goes on in the chorus to say, you remember the song? Would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television show? Now, I'll tell you, as somebody in ministry who is paid by the faithful giving of the church, I mean, you all pay my my salary, I I wrestle with that tension. I will say for the record, this is not a $10,000 watch. It's probably not much more than 20 bucks. But, um, but, but we do have to ask ourselves. We always have to be aware of that. And the reality is, in all of human history, there are those who will use circumstances for personal gains, for selfish gain. That's what Jesus is seeing. That's what he's seeing. And so the, the roughness, the overturning the tables, so the, um, the driving out of the money changers is because he wants to reclaim the temple space for what God intended it to be. He wants to cleanse it so that what they have turned into a 7-Eleven, what they've turned into a Black, or a Black Friday market, can be the place of prayer and co- connection to God that it was designed and created to be. Necessary roughness that begins to make things new, to restore things to what they were meant to be. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, there's a second thing that's happening here. And that is a, a little bit of, of foreshadowing. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they, they tell us this story, and they tell us this story of Jesus and the money changers during Holy Week, one of the last things Jesus does before he's arrested. The Gospel of John tells a story too, but he tells it at the beginning of his Gospel. John chapter 2, which leads some scholars to believe that Jesus did this twice, which we'll talk to in a, about in a minute. But in John's story, there's a little more detail to it. Because after he drives out the money changers and the, and the merchants, the religious authorities ask him, what gives you the authority to do this? What gives you the authority? And Jesus says something that makes no sense at the time, but it would in the aftermath of his life and resurrection. He says to them, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it three days. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they look at him and said, you're out of your mind. This temple's been under construction for 46 years. You can't rebuild it in three days. And of course, he's not talking about bricks and mortar. He's talking about his body. He's foreshadowing something, and that is the day is going to come when this exercise of faithfulness, this exercise of sacrifice, repetitive sacrifice done every year, will no longer be necessary because it will be done once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. And the one who is the Lamb of God, remember John when he baptized him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he will be sacrificed. His life will be given so that once and for all atonement can be made for our sins. And so he is foreshadowing the time when this will no longer be necessary. But I think something else that's interesting to think about is the fact that John tells us it happens at the beginning of the ministry. That Matthew, Mark, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke remind us it happened at the end of the ministry, and it reminds us of the repetitive nature of being made clean for us. The, the idea—I mean, do we not doubt for a second that as soon as Jesus left, the merchants moved back in? As soon as he left, the money changers set their booths back up. And it reminds us why the atonement for sin is made once and for all. We are constantly being renewed. We are constantly needing to come to the Lord for cleansing. The rough places become dirty and contaminated, or the clean places become dirty and contaminated again. We must constantly come to God to be made 
or to be restored. I really appreciate it. I probably a lot of you didn't see it, but on um, Thursday afternoon, I'm sorry, Wednesday afternoon, when the story about all this coronavirus broke around the church and the reporters were coming around, and um, they kind of did what I call, and I've been prepared for this, an ambush interview. They got, if you know Anna Jarvis, I know a lot of you do, she sings with the praise band a lot of times. They caught her in the parking lot and put her on camera. And um, she was awesome. The only bad part about us getting that story pulled was you didn't get to see Anna. But Anna was great, and she was so, so balanced in her words and thoughtful in her reflections. And she said, you know, we need to be aware, but we use the common sense and the health practices that we know. And, and she was talking about our kids. And, you know, if you know Ann and Steve, you know they got a whole bunch of them. Um, and uh, she said, you know what, we, we teach them that when you come home from, you know, when they come home from school, we make sure they wash their hands. Before they eat, we make sure they wash their hands. You know, after they eat, we make sure they wash their hands. She was talking about these practices of health that they follow, that, that we all should follow. And I was thinking about her words, and I was thinking, you know, it's a good way to think about what, what I think we learn in this story. And that is that if, if Anna's kids came home, if, if Chloe and Bianca or, or any, of the, any of the kids uh, came and, and Anna said to them, okay, you need to go wash your hands. And they said, oh, don't worry about it, Mom. We did it yesterday. Right? That wouldn't fly, right? If, if somebody said to you, um, hey, um, have you taken a shower today? I'm like, no, don't worry about it. I did it last month. You know, it wouldn't because we know that we have to repetitively be made clean. Now, here Jesus has to drive this, this money change. He does it twice in the Gospels, if we take the literal chronology of it. He does it twice because I think in that we see the fact that being made clean is, is a repetitive work of God in our lives. Our, our salvation, the grace that we got, the, the, the gift of, of forgiveness happens once, but the, the transformation that God works in our lives is in process all the time. And there are areas of our lives, this is where we begin to need to personalize the gospel. There are areas in our lives, as unpleasant as it may be, that we need Jesus to overturn some tables. We need Jesus to come in and and do some necessary roughness in our lives to slough off the, the harmful and the dirt and the things that are getting in the way of our relationship with him and our faithfulness to the call of Christ on our lives. Lent is a time that we invite God into that process. Lent's a time that we, got, we invite God intentionally to be about this work that sometimes is not always pleasant to begin to make those places that are contaminated clean and a lot of times during the season of Lent people will give things up for the season uh, the practices of you know some of the common of giving up chocolate or or giving up alcohol or, or giving up you know fast foods giving up television after this week I'm ready to give up social media um, you know giving up things and that is those are healthy and and good practices but we always got to remember why you know, why? Why do we do that? Because in those moments that we choose that rough path, you know, if, if you love coffee and you've given up coffee, you know, that's a rough decision, especially those first few mornings. But the idea is in that rough moment, that difficult moment, to refocus ourselves, to invite God into that space, to invite God into the moment to work something new, to give up something unnecessary and replace it with the work of God in our lives that is necessary. To be focused on God and to ask God to begin to move into, to not only 
cleanse us to, but to uh, if you want to use, if you allow me to use language, to kind of buff us up, you know, to, to help us shine. So that we ask God to move in so that hardened hearts would become soft. That selfish focus would become selfless giving. That, that we would begin to embrace the opportunities to, to, to walk away from our self-absorption and, and our envy or our, or our short tempers or whatever it is that, that so often gets in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And begin to work in our lives so, so behaviors and patterns change. We become more like Jesus. So, you know, when we walk by the person on the street who's hungry, we don't just pretend not to see him. Or when we have the opportunity to, to give up a, a pursuit that we, a selfish pursuit to spend time with family or loved ones, we, we choose the relationships with others that God has given to us. That, that we become intentional about taking care and being good stewards of the environment that God has given us to have dominion and care for, uh, that we begin to put God above personal gain. I mean, there's no end to the ways that God calls us to allow him to work, to clean up those places in our lives that, that have become uh, dirty or contaminated. Lent is this season, and there's all, every season is the time for that, but Lent is an intentional time for that, to allow God to begin to work. So the roughness of, of Lent can give way to the glory of Easter resurrection and that that work of God in our lives can, can manifest and can show and be revealed in us as we allow God's work to make us clean. It is not easy and sometimes it's not pleasant. It's a lot more comfortable to ask God to pat us on the back than it is to smooth out the rough spots. But God loves us too much to just pat us on the back. God loves us too much. He, you know, the, the saying you've probably heard before, he, he accepts us where we are, but he's just not content to leave us there, but to do and to transform and to make us more. I, I challenge you, as I am challenged in this holy season, to invite God in and to, to be open with God and say, God, what are the places of my life where I need some tables turned over and some, some behaviors driven out and allow God to work in our lives the necessary roughness for restoration, wholeness, and cleanliness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we recognize that's a tough prayer. It's a tough prayer to invite you into those places and, and to inv- ask you to, to do the, the tough work in our lives of, of driving out the behaviors that would get in the way of our relationship with you, with roughing up the places where we need to be made clean. But that's exactly what the season invites us to do. That's exactly what you long to do in our lives because that's how much you love us. So Lord, open us to your work and create in us the clean, whole, healthy people, hearts, behaviors, practices that you've called us to live into and who you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' holy name and let the people of God say, amen. Friends, I invite you now to stand as we sing our hymn of commitment this morning, Have Thine Own Way, Lord.
friends, as we conclude worship today, I remind you again that if you would like somebody to pray with you, our, our Stephen ministers are here for prayer. And as I go, I leave us with this prayer, that as we sing those words, have thine own way, Lord, that, Lord, that be the, the cry of our heart, the truth of our invitation, that we'd allow you to have your way in our lives. And, and even where that is a little tough, we even where it's a little rough on us, Help us to know that your love seeks to cleanse us and to make us new, to transform us into the power and the image of Christ, by the power and into the image of Christ. So we invite you to do that as we seek to go in faithfulness and obedience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.